For as long as we have lived, for as long as we have known, love has carried us. You're listening to the Sermon Podcast of Genesis West in Robbinsdale, Minnesota. You can find out more about us at genesiscove.org. Enjoy the teaching. The scripture reading today is from Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Once while Jesus was standing beside the lake of Gennesaret, and the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he saw two boats there at the shore of the lake. The fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats and the one belonging to Simon and asked him to put out a little way from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we have worked all night long, and, but have caught nothing. Yet if you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done this, they caught so many fish that their nets were beginning to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For he and all who were with him were amazed at the catch of fish that they had taken, and so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Then Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching people. When they had brought their boats to shore, they left everything and followed him. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Betsy. Okay, uh, so... Very familiar text for many of us. Quick summary. Uh, Jesus tells fishermen uh, to go back out to the deep waters where they've caught nothing all night and let their nets down for another to see if they would catch more fish. They're tired. Their nets are already kind of broken. Jesus, as far as we know, is not a fisherman. And yet he tells these experienced fishermen to go back out and let their nets down. Uh, and then Peter falls to his knees, demands Jesus go away from him. He's a sinful man. Dramatic one, that Peter, isn't he? He just always has to react at the absolute highest degree of drama. And then Jesus sounds a bit like a Southern Baptist evangelist when he says, from now on, you're going to be fishing for people. So I'll play question. Uh, all plays are designed to get to the voice of the chorus so we get a better understanding of what God is saying versus just the solo. Uh, how do you react when you hear that passage? What are thoughts that come to mind? Reactions? <laughs> is that Will? Yeah, yeah, I know. I'm supposed to go fish for people, sign people up like some colonial mission. Say it again, Greg. Yeah. What's the other side of the boat? Like, what else is happening? Keep going. Reactions, thoughts, questions even. Are people as dumb as fish? Exactly, right? Sort of offensive. Do fish want to be caught? Oh, now we're getting good. Thanks, Pia.
So Nate said, it's interesting that recognition of sin on Peter's part came after this abundance, this, you know, many, many fish filling the boat so that they might sink. What else? Yeah, whatever this experience is, it causes them to leave everything and follow Jesus. And it's interesting that Jesus in this passage never asks them to follow him. He doesn't. But they are so compelled with whatever just happened that they do. Good Lord. Did you guys all see that happening and I didn't? Oh, my. Okay, well, um, my cards face up on the table. I have very little interest in finding out if this is just another uh, summons for Christians to uh, get out the vote and make sure to sign people up to be Christians. Uh, I think Christianity, at least in 2019, uh, as an institution, has lots and lots of um, things to repent for. Uh, It's pretty sick in many ways. And so honestly, as a Christian pastor, I've been a pastor for 24 years, I really, at this point in my life, have no interest in signing people up for that journey. Uh, People are sick, and I don't want people to get more and more sick. That's just me. You can disagree with me, and that would be delicious and fine. (laughs) But I am really intrigued in what Jesus is doing, was doing, and is still doing. So like so many, uh, this passage is like so many passages in the scriptures where we think we know what's going on and we really probably don't. So the questions I want to touch on are why did Jesus choose fishermen to be his disciples? Why did they leave everything to follow him to Deva's point? And what kind of life was he calling them into? Now remember, this is the first century and he's talking to fishermen and fishing is one of the biggest economic um, jobs or like that's, that's one of the biggest ways to make money in the Galilee region because there's so much water and people fish and people sell fish. But it is not 2019. That is, this is not a free market economy. So in 2019, if you want to start, if you're 16 years old, let's say, and you want to start a lawn mowing business, In fact, I was at the Kennedy's house, DJ and Beth Kennedy, and their kids did start a lawn mowing business. So I got there, and uh, Sid was going over the books to make sure, because he had a meeting with his board. Now, Sid's the youngest of the three kids, and he was preparing the books for this board meeting because this is a legit business that they they have, right? So they cut people's lawns. So I started thinking about that, and um, in a free enterprise market economy like we have, products, prices, and services are determined by the market, exactly, not the government, right? It's all supply and demand. So if you live in an area where people are willing to pay you to cut your grass for them, and if you have a competitive price, you're probably going to make a decent amount of money. You are going to need some equipment. So you're going to need a lawnmower, a trailer, a truck to haul it. You might need a trimmer, and some other stuff. I did a little research, and for about 15 grand, you can get all those things, right? Use truck, maybe use lawnmower, 
And then you're going to have to do some marketing. How am I going to get the word out that I'm open for business? You're going to have to pay a little bit of taxes, right? If you make more than $400 in your little lawn mowing business, you do have to report your earnings. But what can you do with that $15,000 worth of equipment that you just purchased? Those are deductions you can make, right? So you're going to do well as long as there's enough demand and if you can kind of corner the market, right? All right. So Jackson, you're kind of fired up about maybe starting a lawn mowing business, right? You can make, he's like, no, maybe a reading business, maybe a tutoring business, not a lawn mowing business. Now, if you're a first century fisherman, though, here's the deal. It's very different. You can't read free market economy into first century fishermen's eyes because economics and religion were totally controlled, conceptualized, and sustained by the political and religious hierarchy. And there's no democracy in that. They are who they are. And those few people, the religious hierarchy and the political hierarchy, held all the wealth. So fishermen and farmers in today's vernacular could essentially be called, they were being trafficked by the political and religious elite. They had to keep producing because the taxes were so high and so exorbitant that if they didn't keep producing, they would die of starvation. So um, this is not a free enterprise system. It's what is called an embedded economy. So an embedded economy is um, such that other non-economic institutions like the religious elite um, and um, even kinship groups, moral concerns, cultural values, and especially the fear instilled by authoritarian leadership, that's what makes decisions regarding the economy. So hang with me. We have exploitative taxes. Because here's what happens. You ever, have you ever thought, like, we read about tax collectors in the, in the New Testament, don't we? Matthew became one of Jesus' disciples. Have you ever wondered how someone became a tax collector? And we're, we know that they're wealthy. We know that they get wealthy by collecting taxes. How you become a tax collector in the first century is, if you're a part of the religious and political elite already and you have money, you essentially would pay for the privilege of being a tax collector by uh, attending an auction. And, the, ta- and the, the, the role goes to the highest bidder. So if you have enough money, you can become a tax collector, and then you can set basically your own rules about what taxes that you demand from, from people. So a story from Josephus, he was a contemporary of Um, a little bit later than Jesus, but in 152 CE, there was a king, Demetrius. We all know King Demetrius, right? He was trying to buy the loyalty of a guy. And so in order to buy the loyalty, he said, I'm willing to suspend the following taxes. Here's all the taxes that this guy would normally have to pay that he's saying in exchange for your your loyalty, here's what I will suspend. The salt tax, the crown tax, the grain tax, which is half your produce, uh, a tax on fruit and nut trees, again, half your produce, the poll tax, the tithe to the, to the synagogue, tributes and imposts and duties. So basically, whenever you went from one section of the county to another, you had to pay a toll tax. You had to pay taxes on your grain. On your, you, had, you had to pay taxes to the crown. 
they were taxed literally to death, and there's nothing that they could do about it because it wasn't a democracy. They didn't vote in these people. And there was also severe limits on buying and selling, like fishing police basically went around and said, do you have the right permits, which costed money, and are you selling to the approved list of people that we have approved? So they could only sell to certain middlemen and wholesalers that were in the pocket of these religious elite. And of course, there was religious control. Herod Antipas was appointed by Rome. He was Jewish to rule the Jewish people, but he did so by getting very, very wealthy on, on um, the backs of very, very poor people. So this is what's inter- in- interesting, though, and this is why Jesus picked fishermen, is that part of the embedded economy was something called kinship. So a family functioned as both a producing and consuming unit. So they would produce grain, but they also needed to eat grain. So they had to figure out ways to sort of barter with each other and band together. In the scripture that Betsy just read, we we read that James and John, sons of Zebedee, were partners of Simon. So uh, people could band together and, and join together in collaborative units so that they could, um, they could get a better bid on a certain lease for a boat or that they could pay off certain people that were bribing them. So um, all of this is happening when Jesus climbs into that boat, that's Simon's boat. We don't know if he owns it or if he leases it. They've fished all night. They've caught nothing, which means their family is not going to eat that day. And then Jesus tells them to go back out into the deep and throw their nets down. And when they do, the story goes, they pull in so many fish that it almost sinks two boats. So they somehow get it back to shore. You can picture all these hundreds of fish, which would have been worth a lot of money. Now, they would have had to immediately like give about one of those boats to Matthew, the tax collector, whose booth was sitting right at the end of the harbor. You know that, right? That's even more remarkable that Matthew becomes a disciple of Jesus and becomes friends with Simon and James and John. Regardless, these guys leave those boats, leave that fish, and follow Jesus. The question is, why? What was Jesus offering to them? That's an all-play question. What was Jesus offering to these guys that made them leave everything? Thank you, Bob. Escape from oppression. Now, I want to camp there for a second, though, right? Because escape from oppression... Now, these guys grew up in Galilee. Their dads grew up in Galilee, same oppression. Their dad's dad, same oppression. So the idea of escaping oppression is a very American idea. Like we think escaping oppression, totally, yeah, just leave. No one had ever come up with an idea that would make escaping oppression even possible. And there was other guys that claimed to be Messiah, So this idea of uh, Jesus was offering a way to escape oppression, let's sit in that for a second. What oppression was he offering an escape from?
political and religious. How, Nate said. How was, because these guys still have to eat. They still have families. How was he offering them religious and political escape from oppression? Say it again, Greg. Power they'd never seen before. Yes, now we're getting into it. So Jesus had power to heal people, to give sight to the blind, to pull fish out of them. I mean, and it's, you know, it's kind of crazy, like these fish. But at the end of the day, it, the fish weren't what rocked these guys' world the most. They left the fish. A couple days later, that shoreline was stanky with dead, rotting fish. They were gone because they saw a power. And this was the power to forgive sins, absolutely. But I'm going to go back to like, why I'm, I have no interest in signing people up um, to uh, join the club by praying a prayer because Jesus is offering so much more in this life than definitely heaven when you die, but he's offering more. Fishermen were an oppressed people group, were they not? Jesus went to them. Now remember, part of the embedded economics was this thing called kinship. The family function as both a producing and consuming unit. Relatives normally work together. There were kinship ties that were fundamental for surviving. So what was Jesus doing in this economy? He was disrupting the embedded society which relied on Rome and Herod Antipas to provide them what they needed. And he said, there is a different way to love and care for one another. If you look at Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, this is a little later on in the story. Jesus has died. He's been resurrected. And there's a group of people that are trying to follow his way. They weren't called Christians yet. They were just called followers of the way. So these guys, Acts 2, 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread, which is the Eucharist, and the prayers. And awe came upon everyone because many wonders and signs, that's the power that Greg was talking about, were being done by the apostles, more than just pulling hundreds of fish out of the water. All who believed were together, and they had all things in common, which doesn't mean they all liked cold play. It meant that they shared their resources. So here is the new economy. If you're going to break my back by taxing me, we're going to, we're going to create a collective of people that shares their resources. That if, if one person has a little more than they need, they're going to sell that. And, and, and we're all going to hold things in common. We're going to hold a common purse. This was what was subversive. Now, we're not advocating communism here. We are advocating for loving and serving one another in the way of Jesus as a way to be subversive to the system that was starving people to death. They would sell the possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, so they didn't, they didn't this is why they're not Christians yet. They're, they're still Jews, they're Jewish. They don't understand that this is a different religion 
This is just a different way to practice Judaism. Day by day, they spent much time together in the temple. They broke bread at home. They ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. And probably not because the preaching was so great. Probably it's because there was bread and food and joy and wine and togetherness. That's what was subversive. And there was nothing Rome or Herod Antipas could do about it except eventually what? Kill the founder. That'll put an end to it. Ooh, big mistake. <laughs> exactly, J-Man. Yeah. Okay, say it again, Nate. Yes, he was an offering away to transcend um, the, the, the system, but not by escaping into some other like commune where they lived apart from everyone else or heaven when they die. It was a way of living with joy and abundance right within society. And that's what was so subversive. Thank you, Nate. That's absolutely true and brilliant. And so... I think he was calling them into a new kind of kinship based not upon exploitative economic systems, but on the rule and reign of God, in which there is neither no, nor Greek, nor Jew, slave, nor free, male, nor female, gay, nor straight. Now, that's not in the scripture, but I think it would be today if it was, called, if it was written. So... What do we do with this new kinship that we're being invited into? If you're James and John and Simon, you go for it. That's why you leave everything. Because they are understanding that it's not escape from reality. It's a different way to live in reality. And I'm convinced that the church is both dying and being resurrected these days. I think part of what's dying is an institutional um, system that keeps giving power to the same kinds of people. Traditionally, that's been white men. Um, and what's being resurrected is a community of people that is not marked by the color of their skin, or as I said before, their sexual orientation or their gender, but by their unity in the Christ who is coming to put all things to rights and to make all things new. And so the question for today is, and don't think just certain kinds of people groups, right? But who is oppressed, who is harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd? And do we talk 
and live with any kind of power so that there might be a different alternative that's not an escape, but right here in this society. And what rules are we playing by? Abundance or exploitation? So those are heavy words, amen? Thank you, J-Man. And for such a time as this, that is what's necessary. Because the Christ is leading his church into a new way of being. And we are being presented with that choice. What will we do? One of the things I love as I close here is that Jesus is sort of saying, if you're a fisherman, I will teach you how to be the best fisherman possible. If you're a teacher, if you're a banker, if you're a stay-at-home dad, if you're a CEO. Dallas Willard once wrote, discipleship is essentially learning how to do your life as if Jesus was living your life. Right? Your job. Your family unit that you yelled at this morning. The only reason why I didn't is because I was out the door before they were up. But <laughs> Jesus the Christ is always at work, always making all things new. And he's inviting his church to join him in that work. Amen.